Well, very good. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that um, you would cause this word to be a great blessing to us. Uh, please speak to us uh, in these words, uh, by these words, that you might tra- change and transform us, help us um, see you, that we might be appropriately humbled before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how would you run the universe if you had the chance? How would you run the world? I ask uh, because of the problem of evil. It's an issue that uh, we all puzzle about and wonder about. And part of the question is, what would you do with evil in the world? What would you do with all the dreadful things we see? If you were God, what would you do with suffering, oppression, evil? What would you do with it? We'd get rid of it, wouldn't we, naturally? That would be the thing we'd want to do, of course. What would you do with the wars, oppression, hatred, cancer, natural disaster? What would you do with each of these things? If you had a friend you knew who was suffering or a member of a family or yourself, what would you do? You'd, you'd get rid of it. You'd remove it immediately. As we think about God and his place in the moral order of the universe... Uh, in the context of a universe that's full of suffering and evil and immorality, most of us are sure we do it differently. Am I right? Why is God doing it the way he is? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever found yourself thinking, I would do it differently? I'm pretty sure most of us have, because in the midst of suffering, we're pretty quick to rail against God. Why are you doing it this way? That's not how I would do it. Things would be different if I had the power to stop it. It's the, uh, it's the classic thing of the war veteran. I don't know if you've had this experience, but you talk to the man who's been in war in the trenches and uh, you, you say, how do you find yourself in relationship with God? And he says, I can't believe in a God who would let all this happen. The things I've now seen, I can't actually follow that God who lets these things happen. There's no way. Have you heard that kind of thing? Evil and suffering, it makes us think we can't follow the God because if I were God, I'd do it differently, but not God. He's doing it his way and I don't like the way he's doing it. The point is, we may not know all the answers to life, but we're pretty sure God's doing it wrong, deep in our hearts. And this is, of course, the book of Job. This is, in a sense, the big idea of the book of Job. The point I want to tackle today is the issue of uh, why evil, why suffering, uh, how is God doing what he's doing, why is he doing it? Because there's a sense in which the point of these chapters that Pete just read for us is exactly on that point. And it's massive. So be ready this morning to have your mind expanded, uh, blown apart if I was able. This is the week that God speaks. And as Rosie said, we've been waiting. We've been waiting chapter after chapter to finally hear God speak and today's the day he does it. In the book of Job, of course, he speaks every week in the scriptures. Every time we read the Bible, we're hearing God speak to us in some fashion. But this is the day that he actually comes out very visibly and speaks. And it's humbling, it's terrifying, it's proud, shattering. Let me give you the context. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. We'll rush our way through it very quickly. Um, Of course, we know from Job 1 and 2 that Job uh, has been given to suffer by God. Uh, A natural disaster has taken his whole family, but also evil has struck him with various uh, wars and uh, people who have come against and been attacked. 
Now, we know why that's all happened, because of an accusation that Satan's brought against Job and against God himself. We've seen that in the weeks past. But what we know too is that it's got nothing to do with his sin. This is not because Job has sinned that this is happening. But then chapter after chapter, chapter 3, all the way through, uh, we have three friends, then a fourth friend, argue and debate and discuss back and forward why God has brought all of this upon Job. And their answers are, what are their answers? Wrong. They're wrong. They're simplistic and wrong. They They are operating with a very simplistic notion that suffering must be because of sin, because of Job's sin. If you suffer, it's because of sin in your life. That's the, that's the system that they've been operating with. And so they argue this case, chapter after chapter after chapter. Job argues back. He knows it can't be the case. He argues and says some beautiful things. He hasn't been the man who has been sinful. He's been blameless. He's been righteous. But he also, in the midst of saying beautiful things, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of all of these beautiful and good things, he starts to lose the plot. Chapter by chapter, he descends into despair and depression. He despairs about his life. He wishes his life didn't exist. Uh, He rails against God. Uh, He he expresses eventually great wonderful hope, chapter 19, about my Redeemer does live and I will see him one day. But then he messes it all up again. it's, It's a journey for Job through the ups and downs. And let me actually just give some quick pastoral observations. Two, two, don't assume that your understanding of God that you have by nature is right. Don't assume that the theology that you have about God is right. We, we, we very quickly form our own convictions and views. We read the whole world through them and we're sure we're right and we actually try and fit everything into it. Be very cautious. We must work hard to read the Bible and read it again and let it reform our thinking and reshape our thinking because what we bring to things is not accurate. We've got to come to the Scriptures in humility. There's the first thing. Second thing, beware of simplistic views on the spiritual life. There is a kind of super-spirituality that's around, that's rife, Uh, which suggests that we can be more than conquerors in the sense that we just triumphantly rule through life by faith and never stress and never suffer and never have any. Just beware of that nonsense. Job is given to us to say otherwise. There is a beautiful truth about the power of the Spirit of God in our life that transforms and changes our experience. Absolutely. We now have... We have another power that can do battle with sin, and so absolutely, but we have that in the midst of a life that's so dreadful. We have it in the midst of a heart and a world and a life that's frail, and Job gives us an experience and evidence of the ups and downs of what suffering brings into your life. There can be beautiful moments of wonderful expressions of piety and godliness. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But in the midst of that and around that will be all kinds of grief and hurt. You'll fail, you'll fall, you'll be up and down. And I say all of this because so many of you are going through dreadful suffering and you don't want to, we don't want to load upon you the guilt of not being what you ought to be. God gives us space and room to go through the journey. Allow room for yourself to be honest and real with God. That's Job. Pray for the strength to be godly. To be able to say those true and beautifully powerful things. Shall we receive good from the Lord and not trouble? Blessed be his name. Pray for the strength to be that, but be aware of the ups and downs. Job never loses his faith through all of this journey. 
But not everything he says is good. You've discovered that as you've been looking chapter by chapter. Some bits are great, some bits aren't so good. There is the normal life under God. But he never curses God. He curses life. He curses his birth, his circumstances. But in the midst of the most intense sufferings, he never curses God. Though he does say some things that are deeply problematic. That he needs to repent of. And let me show you one of those. Chapter 31. Grab your Bible, go there, 31. <clears throat> Look at verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Let the Lord Almighty answer me, says Job. I'm innocent. Let him put his case before me. I don't deserve this. 37. I would give him an account of my every step. And the ESV translates it, I think, more accurately. I would present myself to him as a prince. I would come to him as a prince, approach him as a near equal. Now, what is that in Job's expression there in, in chapter 31? What's going on for Job? I want to suggest what's happening is the emergence of pride. I'm in the right. I'm innocent. So that you, God, have brought this upon me means you're in the wrong. How dare you do this to me? I don't deserve this. Now, this is Job. He is the best of men. We're told that in the first two chapters. But in the shaking of suffering, stuff comes to the surface that was always there. Let me offer an illustration. Uh, you, you've often seen bottles, older bottles with fluid in them and uh, sitting in the cupboard for quite some time, um, beautifully crystal clear water, and then you pick up the bottle, shake it, and suddenly it's cloudy. And you, where does the cloud come from? Well, it's been at the base of the bottle, sitting there as sediment all the time. It's now through the shaking come to actually... F there's every human life. Do you know, uh, as, we, as we go through life relaxed and comfortable, things going well for us, the sediment drops to the bottom. And we can smile and be polite and beautiful and lovely and have a wonderful relationship with God in prayer and so on. But then suffering comes and shakes your life up. And what emerges is always there in your heart. We just didn't see it. And what will emerge in every human heart is pride. The pride of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And so finally, after ignorance upon ignorance of human thought, after man after man says what they were sure was happening, and Job demanding that God speak to him and answer him, God finally speaks. We've been waiting. And here it is now this morning. Join me in chapter 38. There are two great speeches of God. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. It positions God. He speaks out of the storm. 
he comes to Job in all his power, all his terrifying might, out of the storm, the storm that humbles and terrifies. And he drives it further when he says to to Job, verse 3, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. What's the tone here? This is not the soft and gentle God. This is not the mother with her child, tender. This is the absolute sovereign warrior God of the universe who says to man, you dare question me? We're about to do battle, you and I. Gird yourself up like a man, like a warrior and see how you fare. And what follows is a list of 77 questions that are thrown at Job, one after the other after the other, pummeling Job. They're rhetorical. You know what rhetorical means. There's no expected answer because the answer is clear what the answer should be. No answer can be given. And what happens here through these few chapters is a great reversal. Job had required God to answer him. Now God says, let you as a man answer me. And these 77 questions range across, range across all of creation, from the heights to the details, the planet, the oceans, the weather, the stars, the animals. They're full of sarcasm, which is a horrible thing. But the offence of petty pride against God and the great vast gulf between us and God demands this kind of speech. Let me give you a taste of it. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Oh, that's right. You weren't there. You don't understand. I was, though. I was there. Look at verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? Were you there? Oh, that's right. You weren't there. You didn't do it, did you? you get the tone? Look at verse 10. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. You weren't there. You didn't do it. You've got no clue. Look at verse... Race all the way through. There's so much of it. But look at verse 33. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? No. No, no, you can't. The point, in the vast reality of the cosmos, in relation to the depths of things on our own planet, in terms of our power and control and influence, we're nothing. We don't have God's power. We don't have God's wisdom. Now, note those two things, because they'll become important for us. We don't have God's power. We don't have God's wisdom. In the big and in the intimate, come to chapter 39. There's a shift that occurs in this second half of the first speech. Do you know, verse 1, where the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time when they give birth? No, you don't. But the point here too is that God has this intimate involvement. He is the power behind the great things of the universe. But he's engaged in the very small details. 
the goat giving birth, the doe bearing a fawn. Verse 2, he rules over the exact times when these things happen. We can watch, we can learn, but God works all of it according to his power and his wisdom. Look at verse 19. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with flowering mane? No, you don't, but I do. He makes, verse 26, the hawk take flight. Verse 27, does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? No, but it does at my command. Now, notice the process through all of this. God doesn't just say he does these things. His point is not only that he does them, his point is that we don't. They are so far beyond us and above us, we can't. We don't have the power, we don't have the wisdom. So that chapter 40, verse 2, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses, accuses God answer him. How can we answer this God, says, says God. And then verse 3, Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I shut up. I spoke once, but have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And right here is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord. Do you know, if I might, just a a quick application for us. Do you know, in my estimation, I think there are two great truths that humanity need to come to terms with if we're going to understand the truth about God and our relationship with him. Two great truths. What do you think those truths are? What do you think are the two great truths we need to come to terms with? I'll give them to you. I won't leave you in suspense. The two great truths are this. That God is a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is love. The first great truth. But what's the second great truth? That he is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is holy. He is other. He is the sovereign, almighty rule of the universe. He's the creator, we're the creature. The second great truth is to appreciate the vast chasm between humanity and sinful humanity at that and the God of the universe. In our day and age, it's very popular to think about the love of God. Everyone who has a vision of God, everyone has some experience in their spirituality of the vision of God. What do they experience? Warmth, acceptance. The beauty love. No one in our modern age thinks upon the vastness of God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God. But here's the thing. If you don't understand the holiness, vastness and otherness of God, you won't ever understand the love of God. The love of God will become for you a soft, grandfatherly thing. Of course he should love me because I'm very lovable. It'll be very positive and warm and accepting and... But when you understand the great vastness of who God is, Job 38, 39, 41, when you understand the great vastness of God, to then hear that that God loves us makes his love an astonishing thing, a thing to marvel at. Romans chapter 8, he did not, that God, did not spare his only son, 
but gave him up for us all. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. There was a theologian many years ago who made the point that we ought to speak less of the love of God and more of the holiness of God. Because if we spoke more about the holiness of God, when we did speak about the love of God, we'd mean much more by it. It would have greater substance and richness and wonder and depth. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That this God, the God who was so far above and beyond, that he should step into our world and become one of us and let himself die at our hands, is an astonishing truth. Do you see? We're often astonished that God should withhold his love. But the Bible is astonished that he would ever love. But it is his nature, the almighty God. Two great truths we need, and the book of Job drives us into that, but it's not enough. <laughs> it's not what we're, we're about here this morning. Because when you get <clears throat> to chapter 41, <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter 40, the whole cycle begins again. And there's two more chapters of God's speech. It starts the same way. Have a look at chapter 40, verse 6. So Job has responded in repentance, but God doesn't leave him there. He comes at him again, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm again. And he says again, brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me again. And what you have through here is an extraordinary tale of two great beasts, uh, the behemoth and the leviathan. And who are they? Is it the hippo and the crocodile? Probably not. It appears to be, but it's more likely, some scholars think it's more likely a personification of evil, these beasts represent. Um, but what you have is a second cycle. Now why? Why does God start again and speak again to Job in almost exactly the same fashion? Well, there's a few reasons. The first one is because the lesson being learned takes time to learn. To learn the lesson of God's otherness, his holiness, his power and might, it is a difficult lesson for sinful humanity to embrace. We see the world through our eyes, we see ourselves at the centre of the universe so readily, so easily, our pride. And you need another speech to drive home again who is at the centre. He is God, we aren't. But there's a second reason why this second speech is there and the key is verse 8 look at verse 8 <clears throat> would you discredit my justice would you condemn me to justify yourself there it is the key ah oh, thanks Pete Great, I don't know what I'll... We'll just pause for a moment, thank you. What I need to do is clear my throat. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the key, verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is the first time in all the questioning that God is pummeling Job with that there's been a particular to the questioning. 
This is, this is a very unique part and it takes us to the heart of Job's issue. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And this is huge. This is the sentiment that was rising to the surface in the suffering of Job, the, the shaking of Job's life, brought to the surface, brought into his experience of life. The, the desire to protect himself, the desire to make himself right and God therefore wrong, to justify himself and bring God. God must be in the wrong because I'm innocent. And in Job's attitude towards God at this point, there's such an obvious piece missing. And what's that piece that's missing? Humility. But a very special particular expression of humility, which is where I want to get us to. You see, look at God's answer to this problem. Look at verse 9. Let me read it through. Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendour and clothe yourself in honour and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Deal with evil if you are so powerful and glorious. Because the glorious one will deal with evil. If you are glorious and majestic, you'll deal with evil. Let me see you put glory and majesty on and deal with it then, Job, if you think you're so great. Bury all of them in the dust together, verse 13. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth. And there is the personification of evil, which God has great control over. Do you have an arm like God's? <clears throat> Do you have the majesty that God has? The glory that can deal with evil? The point is, can you save yourself from evil? No. Job has suffered at the hand of evil in his world and he's been questioning God's handling of it. Why are you doing it this way? Why are you letting evil run rampant? Why are you doing what you're doing? And God says, do you have the power or the wisdom to deal with evil? No. And this is the point. This is the point of the book of Job in many ways. There are other points. This is the point of the two speeches of Job, of God. <clears throat> There's a sense in which this is the whole thing. The first speech was leading up to this issue. And the summary of the first speech is this. You don't have the power or the wisdom to manage, control or even understand the physical stuff of the universe. The second speech... Just as you were totally out of your depth with the physical stuff of the universe, you have no clue about the moral stuff of the universe. You can't control evil. You can't rescue the world from it. You can't save yourself. You don't even understand how it works. And so your criticisms of me and my handling of it are completely out of place. This is the depths of the book. This is not just God humbling humanity and putting man in his place. This is a stinging rebuke to any person who by complaining about particular events in his life, her life, implies that they could propose to God a better way to handle evil, a better way to run the universe. We are eager to rid the world of evil, 
We are rightly hating evil. Absolutely. But how? How do we... How do we get rid of evil in the world? How do we manage and control it and order it? How do we deal with evil in our world? Do you know? Our world thinks it does. But if you're old enough to know any history, what is one of the, what is one of the common features of humanity's attempt to deal with evil over the centuries? Failure. How, how do we deal with evil in our world? How do we manage? Do we just have better education? Just teach people better? Do we run programs in schools to get kids to be more nice to each other and smile more often? Do, do we run programs about accepting one another and everything? Do, do we get rid of oppressive powers and condemn and critique? Do we enact more laws? Do we give more power to the police? Do we have better prison? What do we do? Do we go to war against evil dictators? What do we do to deal with evil? How do we manage it? Do you have any answers? Because I'm telling you, none of them have worked, have they? We've pursued a path of let's make people accept one another and all that's done is shift who's excluded. We've gone the whole, let's be more tolerant, let's make a world that's full of intolerance, it's horrible. But all we've done is shift who gets the intolerance. We see a world, a room full of dirt and dust, and we're trying to clean it up, but all we can do is sweep it from one part to another part. We can't get rid of it. We think we can, and we sure we know how we should, but none of it's worked. Every revolution that's ever happened to overthrow an evil dictator has brought back in... A new dictator. We, we, we just The war to end all wars. We've had more wars since then in the history of humanity. We don't know what to do with Russia. And it seems so simple. All we should do is go in and get rid of Putin. But if we do that, we'll undermine, civilise. There's all kinds of things that will fall apart if we try and do that. It'll actually tear apart the fabric of elsewhere. We don't know what to do. Job, you question me on my handling of evil. Well, you robe yourself with power and glory and let's see you deal with it. See if you can save yourself by your great right hand. Oh, you can't, can you? We don't have the power or the wisdom to rule the physical universe. We have less power and wisdom over the moral And that is, I want to suggest to you, the great truths of these chapters. God is God. There is this deep truth that's being revealed here about the godness of God. And it's this. That he alone has the power and the wisdom to deal with evil. He alone. Let me give you three questions. How is it possible to eradicate evil, humble the proud, crush the wicked, and and yet not do it with the kind of power that, that ends up creating a new tyrant? How is it possible to overthrow the tyranny of evil and still be holy and just in the process? How is that possible? Do you know? Second question, how is it possible to eradicate evil 
and yet still save some of those who are evil? Do you know? Third question. How is it possible to eradicate evil and ensure it never comes back again? Do you know? A mere human, do you have a clue? If so, save yourself. Oh, that's right. You can't. But God can. In an act that no human mind could ever have conceived. Job was never told that God's answer was in his heart from the very beginning, from the time he permitted Satan to work in his world. And he was using Satan to anticipate his great and glorious majestic solution to the problem of evil in the human heart. And what was that answer? It's the cross of Christ, the death and resurrection of the Son of God himself. It was a day when God came into our world as one with us and he absorbed into himself all evil and sin and suffering and by that act not only destroyed evil, judged Satan, cast him out from his world, but also made possible the flooding out into our world of a kind of love that would humble every human heart who understood it. The kind of love that meant forgiveness for evil sinners. And yet God still be just in the forgiveness of those sinners. We're talking about the cross of Christ, the day when God stepped into our world and paid our debt for us and destroyed sin, Satan and death and freed sinners forever to never sin again into a new age. What no eye has ever seen or mind conceived, God, only God knows. Oh, the riches and wonder and splendour of the wisdom of God, his judgments are beyond tracing out. You know, it's popular to wrestle with the issue of evil and suffering in our world and run down this path. It's popular to kind of say to ourselves, um, you, know, you know, I could understand if evil and suffering existed if there were a good reason for it. I can think of no good reason for it, so therefore there is no good reason for it. It's therefore wrong of God to permit it, to will it. But the book of Job says this deeper truth. Mere human... The fact that you can't think of a good reason why evil and suffering might be in the world just means you're a human. It just means you've not got the power or the wisdom to make sense of things. You can't control anything. You've got nothing. That you can't think of a good reason. doesn't mean there is no good reason. It just means that you're frail and weak and small and petty. The deeper point of Job is that God is God. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And he says to Job to humble yourself before the God who, who alone rules the universe, who alone is majestic and glorious, who alone has the glory of a love that can conquer sin and evil in a way that doesn't make him a tyrant, that means sin will never come back again, that means sinners can be forgiven. 
Brothers and sisters, this book is extraordinary, isn't it? Its lessons are remarkable. And its truths are almost entirely foreign to the world around us. Because sin won't let itself think of God like this. Above and beyond us. Loving with a wisdom beyond us. That means we have to bow the knee and trust him. Sin won't let people do that. Except by the glorious work of God who conquers sinful hearts by his Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you find yourself sitting there this morning going, wow, I get it. I get that God is beyond me, above me. He is a loving and powerful God. He has worked in the cross, a miracle beyond comprehension. If you find yourself thinking that, do you know why that exists? Because of the grace of God, who has come to you by his spirit to open your eyes to see what you could never see by nature. Praise God for his kindness and mercy. The sovereign holy God, who is loving and beyond comprehension, and alone can manage the things of the world that we are in. Pastorally for us today, trust him. Whatever you're going through, whatever's happening in your life, every time you have that question, why, why, why is this happening? What are you doing, God? Remember the greatness and glory of the majesty of God, who is the loving God, who has shown in the cross of Christ that he has the answer. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary message of the book of Job and pray, please, that you would humble us, that you would help us see your majesty, your glory, your greatness as the loving God who alone knows how to manage evil, who has had from the very beginning a plan and a purpose for evil, who in the cross in the death and resurrection of your Son, has rescued us from evil, defeated sin and Satan and death. We thank you for these astonishing truths. Help us learn the lesson that Job learned and humble ourselves before you and put our confidence and trust in you and you alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.